0: Good morning. morning. I would invite you to take your Bibles and return to the book of Acts. Now today we're looking at Acts chapter 14 verses 1 through 8 and what I would like to do before or 1 through 7 what I'd like to do before we begin though is just open in a word of prayer so would you join me in prayer. Father I thank you for uh, these great songs of grace that have been sung I thank you for this wonderful passage before us. Just a few verses of Paul moving into the next city and, uh, and, and the proclamation of the Gospel and all that part- took place as he proclaimed uh, Your Word. I pray now that our hearts and our minds would be uh, focused on Your Word, that it might do all the work that You intended to do. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, as we were looking at the journey of Paul and looking at his preaching, we talked about the fact that that the gospel itself is not a neutral message, that you're proclaiming a message where you're telling people Jesus Christ is the way, he's the truth, he's the life. There's no other way to God but through him. And that by itself is not a neutral message. And so it forces you to have to react to it. As you proclaim Jesus, you're forced to a reaction. Will you believe this or will you not believe it? And, and so by, by its very nature, it's not a neutral message. But there's something else that we're going to see as we begin chapter 14. We're also going to recognize that when, as Paul goes out and preaches this message that demands a response, he's preaching it to people who aren't neutral either. People have an opinion, about eternity people have an opinion about god they have an opinion about themselves they have an opinion about the world we're not preaching to people who are neutral or just sitting there saying give me a worldview everybody believes in something everybody believes in something and so when you go into the world you're going into a world where where people by themselves have a view and so you're bringing a non-neutral message a message that forces a response to people who have a belief and that sometimes causes a collision and we're going to see that in Acts beginning here in Acts 14 and as this these next two weeks as we go over Acts 14 we'll see how these this people can collide sometimes with the message. Now, when you are a preacher or when you're evangelizing or when you're sharing Jesus with people, it's easy to find two temptations when you're dealing with a non-neutral world. Right? When I'm sharing with somebody, there, there, there are always two temptations in front of me because people aren't neutral about what they believe. The first temptation that I can face is to backpedal on the message, to soften the message, knowing that it can be offensive to people. I remember one time I was officiating a wedding for somebody, and uh, the wedding, a wonderful Christian couple, and they were getting married, the bride's family's church, and, uh, and we are you know, at this church, and... It was a big church, beautiful church, you know, kind of a state-of-the-art building. And after the rehearsal, one of the staff members says, hey, can I give you a tour of the building? Yeah, I'd love to see the building. So we're walking through the building, and the uh, staff member boldly proclaims, you will notice that in our building we do not have a cross anywhere. There's no cross in our building. I said, huh, why? And the staff member said, well, because the cross is offensive, and we don't want to offend people. And you say, well, you got good theology in one sense and horrible practice. Good th- you're right, the cross is very offensive. You obviously understand that point. And you understand that people react. They react. They walk in, they see a cross, and we say, Jesus died on that cross for you because you deserve death, but he died in your place. Very offensive message. The Bible makes it clear the cross is offensive. But what had happened was, They recognize the world isn't neutral and that people will be offended by that. And so the temptation that they fell into was to remove the cross and hence take away that offense. Now, we don't want to be offensive personalities, right? You don't want to be a rude person. But there is a temptation. We don't... The temptation to soften the message is very much there because people aren't neutral. There's a second temptation that comes. And this this temptation... Uh, is kind of a strange one, but it's true and you might find this to be true in yourself. The temptation is, you recognize that people aren't neutral and they have positions and beliefs and the temptation sometimes for us is to be arrogant and to laugh at them for their beliefs. To make fun of them. Maybe they put out a worldview and you go, oh, I can't believe that. Oh, can you believe they believe that? And to get kind of rude about it. To get kind of condescending. A couple weeks ago, Somebody wandered in the office off the streets. Jeff was up at the front, talking to the person, and I'm in the back by the kitchen and uh, of the office there, and this person begins to espouse a lot of kind of things that were out there, and they're just kind of talking, and Jeff is just kind of gently trying to bring it to Christ, and it's, the, 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 you know, the questions, you know, the conversation is clearly out there, and uh, after a while, Jeff's just hanging in there and keeping the focus on Jesus, and and, uh, you know, finally the guy leaves, and, and Jeff turns around, he walks him back, and he goes, isn't it good that the gospel can even save somebody who's thinking like that, that God's that powerful? And that was the right response, because it would have been very easy to have gone, wow, that guy was whacked, right? It'd be very easy to start making fun of him, because the stuff out there was out there. And yet the gospel hasn't been given to us, and and clarity of eyes to see truth hasn't been given to us so that we can make fun of people whose eyes are blind, right? We haven't been given the grace of the gospel to then to become arrogant and roll our eyes when somebody doesn't believe something that we don't believe. Those are the two temptations. What we're going to see as we get into Acts 14 is that Paul and Barnabas, as as they're facing this non-neutral audience, they didn't back down. They didn't alter the message. They didn't turn it into some kind of personal argument and go after people. They lovingly and patiently and and uncompromisingly were bold in the proclamation of Jesus. And that's what we're going to see today. Now... I've outlined, we're just looking, there's two cities here. So I've titled this The Tale of Two Cities, Part One, next week, part two, as we look at the second city. We're seeing these two cities. And in these two cities, this kind of same event seems to take place, the same cycle of events. That's how you how your the message is outlined here in your bulletin. Paul goes in and he preaches, and then persecution rises up, and then God proves the message. Now we're gonna see this cycle, and we're gonna see it all throughout. God is, you know, Paul is preaching, people turn against him, and then God shows up to confirm the message. And we're just going to see that cycle through. But what I want you to see when you see that cycle, and, and as you see Paul go through this, is I want you to recognize how patient, loving, and bold Paul is in that process. As all these things are unfolding, he remains patient and loving and bold. And I want you to see that today because uh, I think it's helpful for us to engage that way and to see the text this way and to to maybe be encouraged in our own life to be patient and loving and bold with Christ. So let's look here. First thing that happens, the preaching. Look at verse 1 with me. He says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Okay, so Paul's kind of uh, mode of operanda was to go into a city, go to the synagogue, because he always knew there'd be Jews there and unbelieving or and, and Gentiles who were interested in the Bible. And so he could go there and preach. He always wants to start with the Word of God. So he lays out and he preaches. But what I want you to picture, what I want to point out to you is this little phrase. There's a phrase in here. Notice what it says. He says, So he, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke... Notice this phrase, in such a way that. Now, it's pointing something out about Paul. And this is what I want you to, to picture. Paul did not just kind of randomly toss out information. right? He did not just stand up and like just dump every piece of theology that he knew on people. This statement is a, is a, is a causal statement. And what it's referring to is the fact that Paul actually understood his audience and understood the message they needed to hear. That's, what, and that's all embedded in that phrase in such a way. It's, it's a phrase that literally means that, that he, he crafted a message. He crafted a message. Now, why am I pointing that out? I want to point this out to you because, because the truth of the gospel is delivered, I I want to say it this way, I'll use my phraseology, in a relational manner. I'm giving truth to people that I know, and I'm trying to make up what's lacking in their understanding. And that, that, that the work of preaching, the work of teaching, the work of evangelism, the work that we all are a part of, is not a distant work, But it's the idea of saying, what, God, do you have me to say to these people? What do they need to hear? So take you in your context. You're going to go to work tomorrow, and you get up to go to work tomorrow. There's a group of people that you engage. And the question is, are we praying, God, give me the the idea, give me the thoughts about you that these people need to hear. Allow me to speak in such a way that Christ is magnified. This is a causal statement about his teaching, Okay, about his speaking. His words were crafted in a manner that God used it to bring about great numbers of people saved. Now we know how Paul did it. When he would go into these places, he would unfold the Old Testament and show how it all points to Jesus. And he understood his audience that these people were reading their Old Testament, so he wanted to unfold it. But what I want to point out to you is that Paul understood his audience. And God had crafted that message. And, and really, kind of maybe a take-home I would give to you from this, that it's a take-home that I, that I have to remember, is that, that whether I'm preaching or whether I'm talking with somebody, it is a relational element. I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to people I should be praying for. I'm speaking to people who have an understanding. And I want to know what they believe. And I want to be able to connect the dots for them. I want to take them from what they believe about God... And take them on a journey. I've had people say things to me, and they, they're, they're, they're giving me their worldview. And when they give me their worldview, my job now is to say, I want to take you from your worldview, and I want to bring you down a journey to show you Jesus. What does that mean? It means that I'm thinking about you, I'm praying about you, I'm taking time to listen to you, I'm taking time to understand you. Paul did not just go up with a canned message and just run around the country, he spoke in such a way, God used it. His words were, were, were for a group of people. And what happens? A great miracle unfolds. Okay, so there's this preaching. Now let's look at what happens. This is typically typical in the life of Paul. The next thing we see is persecution. Verse 2, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers. Now this is an interesting tactic. So you've got to picture this. Paul's in a synagogue. In the synagogue are Jews and Gentiles. He preaches. Jews and Gentiles are getting saved. But particularly, there's these Gentiles getting saved. Non-Jews. They're trusting in Jesus. Now, the religious leadership, because you remember, uh, uh, usually when it's relating to the pers- uh, when they talk about the persecution or the unbelieving Jews, it's, Luke is usually referring to the religious leadership. The religious leadership that have a lot to lose their power is gone if Jesus is Lord, and, and so they feel threatened by Paul. They, uh, they, they now want to stop this revival, and so they're building a firewall. They come up with this plan. So let's say we got this unbelieving, or I'm sorry, this Gentile over here who believes. Okay? So now he's trusted Christ. The Jewish leadership knows that this guy's gonna go home and start telling his friends and family, hey, I learned about Jesus. So what do the religious leadership do? They go to the friends and family of this guy and say, hey, your friend or your brother or your uncle whoever that was who believe, I'll tell you, he's believing a bad message. And that Paul, he's a bad man. And that missionary team is a bad team. You need to stay away. So see what they've done. is They're creating a firewall. They're keeping it from spreading. They're using gossip. They're using slander to, to, to tear down and to keep gentiles from trusting in christ so rather than taking their mission to take the good news to the gentiles which is the role of the jews instead they rebelled against that mission and they're trying to stop it from spreading now what i want to point out to you in the persecution is that sometimes persecution comes passive aggressively passive aggressive what is passive aggressive passive aggressive means somebody's being aggressive but it appears like it's passive you, you, you know, and so, so, so the idea is they're not coming directly to Paul, challenging him theologically. They're coming to the friends and the, the, the network out there. And they're trying to use slander and gossip to stop that message. They're working behind the scenes. Now, Paul knows this is happening. He's fully aware of it. But now they're, now they're working and creating division within the community. So now you have division, right, which is exactly the method of Satan always, is to create division, divide, divide people from God, divide people from each other. That's his ultimate ends, and that's what you have going on here. Okay, so Paul's preaching, now there's division. Now for a moment, if you put yourself in that situation, how would you respond? How would you respond knowing that there is a whole group of people that are beginning to start thinking you're crazy and people are turning against you and the leadership of a town is turning against you? How would you feel if you were teaching Sunday school and three or four kids got saved in your Sunday school class and then all of a sudden the city council discovered that you were sharing the gospel in your Sunday school class and they're going around to all your neighbors saying, hey, that person who's in that Sunday school class, they're off, they're wrong, they're bad. And all of a sudden there's division growing against you. What would you do? Right? As human beings, we don't like that. But let's look at what Paul does. And this takes us to our third point, the proof. The good thing that we have here is that we're going to see Paul's response and we're going to see God's response. And in in both of these responses, I think you'll find uh, a challenge and hope. Okay? First thing we see is is, is, uh, Paul's response. The first part of verse 3. Notice what it says. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. So, even though there's the slander going on and the gossip's going on and all this stuff's going on to try to turn the community against Paul and against those who have believed, and even though that's going on, Paul doesn't say, Well, fine then, I'm out of here. I'm quitting. He stays. And it says he stays for a long time. I don't know how long it is, but he stays. And what does he do? He speaks boldly. He didn't back down. He didn't say, okay, listen, I know we're getting these, you know, the Jewish leadership mad. Come on, let's find some common ground. What can I take out of the message that would make you happy so we can all get along? He wasn't doing that. He's saying, I'm going to stay here and keep proclaiming Christ and recognizing that as people believe this message, I'm bringing them into this conflict. He can't stand up and say your life's going to get better if you trust in Christ. Think about that. Sometimes we like to preach the gospel as if everything's always going to improve in your life. I remember as a kid, I would hear these testimonies and usually in like on our youth rallies that we would go to as a kid, they'd bring in like some football player. Oh yeah, before I, you know, didn't believe in jesus i'd lose the game and it'd be really bad and, you know then i asked jesus into my heart and we were down by by seven and there was four seconds left and you know we had to, we had to go 60 yards and, and i got in that huddle i said jesus man this one's for you and i threw that thing and we won the game praise god right and all those youth people are like that's the kind of jesus i want right i want the jesus that makes me win the game yeah I don't want to be, that's what I want. I want a Jesus where everything gets better. I want a Jesus that no problems happen in my life. And yet Paul's going to say, listen, here's the reality. Man, I'm telling you, Jesus is the way. But here's the reality, man. If you join me in this mission, your family's probably going to hate you. And the leadership's going to turn on you. And you're going to be alone. And you're going to have to die to yourself every day. And you won't be able to stand there and say, everything's going to be great. You're going to have to pass through fires and tribulation, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Okay, that's what he's doing. He's staying in the game and telling people, man, boldly, stay with Jesus. Stay with Jesus. I know it's getting tough. I know they're turning against us, but stay with Jesus. Stay here, right? This is what he's doing. There's the challenge. But notice what God does. Verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now here's what he's saying. They are preaching, and then God is backing up that message. God is doing things so that everybody would know for certain that this message is true. God's backing it up. That's an empower that's a powerful point you need to recognize. When you are bringing the gospel to somebody, when you are talking about the hard news of Jesus, you are not alone. God is fully there at that moment doing his work. And in this case, he's backing it up. Now, how is he backing it up? He's backing it up with signs and wonders. Now, what are signs and wonders? Signs and wonders are miracles. I like to say it this way. Signs and wonders are when the spiritual world invades the natural world, the physical world, and overcomes it. Right? It's a sign and a wonder. right? When the, when, the, when, the, when the spiritual world comes in and invades the physical world and overcomes it. And all of a sudden, God shows that He is sovereign over the physical world. So Jesus turns water to wine or raises the dead or blind receive sight and these just incredible things and this is the kind of stuff that's happening here now throughout the book of acts we're going to see signs and wonders show up and a lot of people wonder why are they there and how do we understand them and what is god doing with them so what i want to do is just take a moment and explain them to you right and hopefully demystify some of this because it's not as 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 is out there as you might think because you have to understand not just what signs and wonders are but why god uses them and why he uses them in Acts. And I think when you understand why he uses them in Acts, I think it sometimes takes away a lot of the questions people have about signs and wonders today. But let me kind of just give you, I'm just going to give you a little overview here. Just a little extra, you know, a little freebie in the sermon here. Just explaining the signs and wonders here. And, and, and how do we understand it in the book of Acts. And, and typically there's about three main big reasons why signs and wonders uh, were used in, in the book of Acts. The first reason, we'll just simply call it the war of religion. What's the war of religion? Well, if you always noticed that, that the people who are opposing the preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts, generally are religious people. Right? The major opposition to the gospel does not come from non-religious people. It comes from religious people. And in this case, most of the opposition that Paul received was from uh, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, Jews who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, Jewish leaders who were steeped in tradition, steeped in the law, but not but would not go and embrace Christ and so these religious leaders would would oftentimes stand up and do exactly what they 're doing. they would go around and, and try to turn people against Paul, they would go into the village and turn people against Paul. now these people had a religious standing they 're standing on you know several thousand years of 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 jewish history and tradition they are standing there as as scholars in the community they 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 know their bible they know their old testament they're they're strong they have they're considered religious pillars and in comes this guy paul and he starts talking about jesus and these guys are saying are you going to believe paul this new guy who's coming into town telling us about jesus or are you going to believe us who've been here well relationship would dictate that you're going to believe the religious leadership Unless that person who's coming in is not only telling you Jesus is Lord, but all of a sudden, God is backing that up because you have somebody who was completely blind and boom, they can see. Or somebody who has leprosy and boom, they're cured right there. Or somebody who's dead and he's raised back to life. So now you're standing there saying Jesus is Lord and all of a sudden, people are seeing the Lordship of Christ invade the world. And people are saying, whoa, Maybe this message is true. This is what happened in Acts 13. We studied it. Paul goes up against this guy by the name of Bar-Jesus, who's a Jewish mystic. And uh, in this case, it was kind of a a more negative miracle. The hand of the Lord comes upon Bar-Jesus, makes him blind, and the the pro-council of the island says, oh my, what Paul preaches is true, because I've seen the hand of the Lord. Now the thing about it is, That the miracle didn't testify to itself. The miracle always is intended to verify the messenger. There's a message we're proclaiming. This is the mission. The mission isn't to heal somebody just so they can die again. Right? Poor Lazarus. That guy had to die twice. I mean, think about that. He had to go through the physical process of death two times. You know, I I only want to go through it once when I'm asleep, Lord willing. Right? I mean, I don't want to get sick and die, and then have you raise me from the dead so that I can say, well, in five years, I'm just going to do it again. Right? What'd you do? You took me out of heaven to make me die again? Right? So there's obviously a bigger thing here than just to bring somebody through that. What's the bigger thing? To confirm that the message of Christ is what you can cling to and hold to and that this is the true religion. This is the true message of God. There's a second reason why signs and wonders show up in Acts. A second reason why. The Lord said that there would be signs and wonders when the Messiah arrives. He said it. He said it in Isaiah 35 and in Isaiah 61. He said that when the Messiah arrives in the world, the blind would receive sight, the deaf would get their hearing, and the dead would be raised. Now every Jew that is hearing Paul preach, hearing him preach that Jesus is the Messiah, And then seeing and witnessing these signs would know God is making good on His word. Signs have come, they're they're verifying the message. Third thing that you see, third reason why miracles show the superiority of Christianity over other world religions. You know, the, the Greek and the Roman worldview was that there's a separation between the physical world and the spiritual world, complete separation. Plato called it the ideal plane. There's this thing out there that's completely separated. There is no real connection. And the only way we can get the connection is through some kind of conduit. And so what we do is we, we take a stone and we carve that stone and we put it in a sacred spot and we hope that a spirit comes into that stone. And now that stone is housing that spirit. And then we can bring our offerings to that spirit and hopefully that spirit then will bring blessing to our life. That's a Greek and Roman worldview. Paul in Acts 17 stands up and says, "Do not think that the God who made the world is going to dwell in a stone that you carved." That's what he says in Acts 17. He's not dwelling in a stone that you carved. You exist in him. Right? He's everywhere. He's not there's no separation. This is his world. And so, what happens when these guys are proclaiming Jesus is Lord of the universe? God, the Father, made this planet and He's established Jesus, His Son, to be the ruler and authority and king over this planet. And He rules and reigns it today. And there is no separation. And suddenly, a person with leprosy is cured. And Paul can say, Listen, you see that? That is just showing you that, that God is not dwelling in a stone. He's here, He's among you. Trust in Him, cling to Him. If you don't, it won't go good for you when you die. See, it's showing the superiority. But the focal point has always been on the message itself. And the amazing thing is that God confirms his message constantly in a variety of different ways. You read in the book of Acts, or I mean, sorry, the book of Titus, as we studied a few weeks ago, in the book of Titus, how was God going to confirm his message? One of the ways he confirms his message is not just by big dramatic signs, right? Somebody with leprosy cured that's a big sign. But he also is going to show it by the way, by the character of a man or the character of of a woman. Titus says, hey, I want the the older women and the younger women to be this way so that the word of God would not be maligned. The testimony is going to come through the character of some. There's a multiplicity of ways. God might be confirming His message with a neighbor in your community because that neighbor's sitting every morning with his coffee looking out his window at your home and watching how you leave for work and seeing you kiss your spouse and hug your children and get into the car and when you come home, your children running to you and giving you a hug and that person sitting in the window going wow, my life is just not like that at all. And they're watching you. And what's happening? The message is being confirmed. And when you have the courage and you share Christ with them, you're sharing Christ with a confirmation of the character of your life. In fact, there's just a multiplicity of ways. And the focal point has never been how God is going to confirm the message. Just trust that He will. He will. I don't worry about the how because I just believe He will. And what my focus is not to get caught up in the how He confirms it. My focus is to make sure that I'm doing the job He's asked me to do which is preach, proclaim, teach, bear witness to the glory of Jesus in all boldness, without fear, done in love and in kindness. So God is doing this work. He's backing it up as they are remaining true and remaining bold. They're not backing the message down. So notice, notice what happens in verse 4 though. But the people of the city were divided. They were divided. Some sided with the Jews, uh, some with the apostles, right? Because it's not a neutral message. A line is being drawn in the sand. But you know what happens? If it were just to stay there, that's okay. But it doesn't happen that way. Division, when it, when it starts taking root, starts churning and getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, Right? It's just what happens. Whenever there's division, it just starts to grow, and it takes on a life of its own, and this is what you have in verse 5 now. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews, with their rulers, to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe and the cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So now what's happening, the people are saying, hey, we need to what we should do is throw giant rocks at them and try to kill them. Just, this thing is bad. We don't like these guys, right? The, 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 the negativity and the bitterness has taken root, and once it takes root, you're right? bitterness always turns to hatred, and hatred always turns to violence. It's just what happens. And this is the process now. And now they come up with this plan. Let's, let's, let's stone them. Let's beat them up. Let's stone them. But God allowed Paul and Barnabas to hear of it, and so they hit the road. They took off. And they went on to the next city. And notice what it says. And they continued to preach the gospel. They didn't say, boy, you know, every time we preach this thing, people try to kill us. Maybe we should change our message, right? right? I mean, people are getting saved, but, you know, maybe we could kind of tone this down. Could you imagine them, you know, Barnabas sitting there going, Paul, you know, when I signed up for this thing with you, you know, I just kind of thought it'd be great. You know, we came to Antioch, we started teaching, the church grew, it was great. We go out here to this thing, man. and So far, we've had to flee flee twice for our lives. And what we're going to discover is that that is the ending journey for Paul on almost every mission. Why? Because the people aren't neutral. They have opinions. And Satan is very much alive and well seeking to destroy and to tear down the message. Okay, so what do we do with this? Let me just want to make four observations for you. Four observations and and then we'll just pray. Go before the Lord with these observations. The first observation I want to make for you is that I want you to, to notice that Paul and Barnabas took the time to bring the message to the people in a clear, logical, concise manner. Right? That, that is what Luke is trying to tell us. They were very intentional about what they said. And the, that observation I want to give because it, it, it challenges me to think about... And for me, I'll tell you what I did was I was thinking about this passage, is, is I, I went on a piece of paper and I started like drawing all the spheres of contacts I have with people. My spheres of contact with you, my neighbors, the community, the people right all, all up and down our office area where the office is and, and all of this, and all the contacts with the people in the village and things like that. And I started asking, okay, as I engage these people, what do they need to hear about Jesus? How do they need to hear it? God, let me be intentional. Let me think this through here a little bit. I want to make sure that that I am talking to these people where they're at. And that I'm drawing a line from where they're at to Jesus. God, help me do that. I think that's what you see in Paul. I think Luke is pointing that out. It will not be the only time he points this out to us. He's already shown it to us twice and he's going to keep pointing it out that this is what Paul does. Second observation I want to make. There are going to be those who will reject the message. And they will reject it in an aggressive manner. That is just true. Right? There are those who will reject. It's not neutral. You're not preaching to neutral people. You're pre- preaching to people who have opinions. You're preaching to people who have thoughts. And here's the reality, that that sometimes that can be hard and harsh. Sometimes that can be complex. But there's a third observation I want to make, and this is what I want to call an indirect observation. The text didn't directly say this, but I, I see it within the whole of Acts. That boldness is a direct result of dependence upon God. What do I mean by that? One thing that I noticed is that Paul and Barnabas never wavered From what god told them to do never wavered from believing that god was going to do what he said he was going to do and i believe that they were so confident that god's word will accomplish god's work in god's way that they didn't alter it didn't change it i see in them a confidence in the word of god a dependence upon it and i think all of us have to kind of take a step back and say i have to believe That this is enough. That, you know, I don't have to stand up here on a Sunday morning and juggle chainsaws that are on fire to hold your attention and tell you about Jesus. I don't have to do that. That God's Word is more powerful than my juggling skills. Right? And I have to believe that. But it's easy to think that a guy standing up for, you know, 37 minutes and talking about the Bible just seems a bit... Boring. And maybe there's something else that should be done. But we have to take a step back and say, no, I need to be bold, and i got to believe that God's Word will accomplish God's work in God's way. I have to believe that. God's Word will accomplish God's work in God's way. And I don't have to be afraid of that. Fourth observation I want to make. God will testify to His grace in His way. The one good news is this. God is the one who brought forth the signs and the wonders, and God is the one that's going to bring whatever God is going to need to bring to testify to your proclamation of the truth. It might not be something as dramatic as a leper getting healed. But it could be something as simple as the way you talk to your child on the front step. It could be something as simple as the how you take care of your home. It could be. Who knows what it is? It could be something very simple. And yet, all along the way, God is using that to confirm that when you share Jesus, it's pointing out that what you are saying is true. God will confirm His message. He'll testify to the message of grace. He will. I don't have to convince. I just need to be faithful. I want to be clear in what I say. I want to teach it relationally in full dependence on God, even if you hate it and reject it. Because I believe God will bear witness to His message His way. That's what I learned from this. Next week, we're going to see these same lessons and even more reinforced as we move into the next city here in Acts. But but why don't we just do this? Let's just take some time here and just bring our hearts and our minds before the Lord and, uh, and just seek His blessing upon us and And strengthening us to be faithful with this message. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for this incredible truth found in your word. Paul and and Barnabas were strong and bold. They didn't waver. God, help us to be bold with this truth. To not alter the message, even in the face of people who might resist it. Lord, may we have confidence that your word will produce your work your way and not feel the need to alter it. And Lord, thank you that you have promised that you will confirm your word. You'll confirm it. We see all sorts of ways. You did it in masterful ways, in major, epic ways. And even as we learned in Titus, you do it just in the own character of your people. But Lord, keep our focus on our work, what you've called us to do, to bear testimony to the person of Jesus Christ. Trusting that you will use that message to carry out your purposes and confirm that message so that people will know that this is true. God, thank you For these words, may they shape us. In Christ's name, amen.